Are you underutilizing one of the most powerful restaurant marketing tools on the planet? What do 92 million monthly Yelp searchers see when they land on your page? Is your content accurate and attention grabbing? Are you using every conversion tool possible to set yourself apart? Yelp is here to help. Go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash profile to sign up for a one-on-one with a specialist that will review your Yelp page and share tips to help you stand out. Again, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash profile to supercharge your Yelp page today. Now here we go. A restaurant in Las Vegas, actually, I went to years ago. Went to the restroom, washed my hands afterwards, used the soap. The soap had the most pleasant odor I've ever, I've ever smelled from a soap in my life. And I go back to that restaurant when I'm in Vegas because of that, or one of the reasons. They do a lot of things right. But that was one of those truly trailblazing messages to me. And also, it communicates to me that these guys are different. They're doing things at a higher level. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators. Served up on the house. Hey, it's Josh. I'm starting a new case study group this month, and I'm looking for a few specific people. So... If you're a restaurant owner or operator that's currently doing $50,000 per month in sales, have the desire and the bandwidth to increase your sales by 10 to 20% and have two to three hours per week to work on these strategies, I would love to help you scale up by Christmas. Go to restaurantcasestudy.com and sign up to learn more. Again, that's restaurantcasestudy.com. What is chutzpah? I think Guy Kawasaki described it best as calling up tech support to report a bug on pirated software. In a word, chutzpah is audacity. And I really want to explore how being skillfully audacious can transform a restaurant and a restaurateur into something more. Today, we're talking with Mason Harris, who wrote the book on audacity and how it can be systematized and weaponized to turbocharge our restaurants. Well, I was a customer, so I loved restaurants and I loved the industry. More than that, though, I was involved in the early days of email with a company called GTE Telenet. They were one of the forerunners of data packet switching. So the internet that we know of nowadays started as a project with, I think, a defense agency. And Telenet was one of the uh, two big companies that was leading the technology at the time. One of the ways they were trying to generate additional growth on this network that they were creating across the country and across the world was with various applications. One of those applications was email, but they were selling private email systems to companies. There was no ability for individuals to email to each other easily. It was within corporations. When email became available, in my company, we looked at it and we said, this is application to so many small businesses. What small businesses are really at a disadvantage that could use something like email, either internal communication and marketing? And there were so many. And we decided on the restaurant industry because one of the people, one of my colleagues had worked in one of the first restaurant delivery sites ever created. It's called Takeout Taxi. He was one of the founders. So the thought was, These independent restaurateurs 
are at such a disadvantage from a marketing perspective. They don't have the budgets. They don't have the resources. They don't have the reach. But what they do have is hopefully loyal customers who come back. And the concept was instead of trying to use advertising dollars to entice new customers to come in, use it to get existing customers to come more frequently, which we all know is a better way for a restaurant to grow, and also get the side benefit of these clients, of these restaurant customers bringing in friends, encourage that. So email was perfect for it. So we created an email loyalty program. And that in the early days is what I was speaking about to restaurant associations and Cisco food services around the country. And that ended up leading to the book. The book led to a paid speaking career as opposed to free speaking. And I got to tell you, paid is a lot more fun. Actually, they're both fun, but paid offers additional benefits. And here it is years later. And I followed up on that book with the Chutzpah Advantage, which was originally designed as a high-level sales approach. Some of the behaviors were a bit different because I was really addressing sales teams. And I started giving that to Cisco sales teams before it was a chutzpah advantage. It was the chutzpah rules at the time. And I really did try not to use the word chutzpah because it was hard to get a lot of people to understand what I was talking about. As I traveled to, to Cisco, Montana or Cisco, Oklahoma, it's kind of like, okay, who's familiar with chutzpah? It wasn't quite like California or New York. Well, let's talk about that, though, because when you talk about chutzpah specifically, what you're referring to, in my opinion, is audacity. Is that a fair parallel? Audacity is one of the best words that I've gotten. In the research I did, there are roughly 40 different synonyms or descriptions of chutzpah that people provided to me. Audacity, I've always liked. The one that I got, ironically, at Cisco in Oklahoma, I asked the question and I wasn't sure, truthfully, that any hands would go up. And a gentleman raised his hand and he said, gumption. And I said, that is a great word. Now, neither gumption nor audacity nor boldness nor rudeness or arrogance, because all of these definitions came out. Intestinal fortitude was one of my favorites, by the way, as well as audacity. They cover a piece of it. So the model basically says, you can be audacious in a stupid way that accomplishes nothing. Is that chutzpah? I don't think so if it's isolated. But if you use that audacity along with, are you handling the objections that you know are coming along? Well, we'll follow. Have you thought them through? Do you have the purpose to get through the challenges or are you going to abandon your idea as soon as you hit a roadblock? So it was the combination, these eight behaviors and characteristics that when multiple behaviors work together, create a tremendous impact. I think it's important to unpack that. When you talk about being audacious or possessing chutzpah, you're not talking about this ethereal quality. What you're talking about is a specific set of behaviors in action, that it starts with a worldview. And then over time, as you begin to adopt these behaviors, it becomes a skill set. Absolutely. And people say, is it really a skill set? And I say, absolutely. And they say, well, I always thought of chutzpah as being positive or negative. And I said, that's great. That's just like a skill set. You and I can both learn how to do software programming. You can use it to make restaurants more efficient, to track inventory better, to make sure invoices are paid. I can use it to create ransomware that takes businesses down unless if I get paid. So it's not the skill set that's good or bad. It's how people implement. Well, and I think you provide really actionable ways to hone those skills. 
as well, which I think is important to realize is that there are many different ways for us to take these abstract qualities, like whether it is charm, which would equate to salesmanship, and hone that skill in a way that benefits both us and the people that we're trying to sell to. Having said that, there are several points in the book that I think would speak directly to restaurateurs. And so to kind of run through these somewhat out of order, one of my favorite topics consistently for the folks that are listening, they know I love to drone on and on about it, is product market fit. And so I want you to talk to me about an area you cover in the book, which is the trifecta of need, pain, and opportunity. To me, that's one of the first ones that come up when I think of somebody who's looking at opening a restaurant. So it could be somebody who maybe went to culinary school or somebody who works in a restaurant or somebody who says, you know what this neighborhood would really benefit from? A restaurant that does the following. So when we think about, and it's not just the first time restaurateur, because it's somebody who can open a chain or a group of restaurants that are committed to service, but they look at the area, they examine, and they come up with a concept that, again, we could really benefit from a, not necessarily a high-end, but a middle-of-the-road Italian restaurant that is great quality, great food, great service. It just doesn't exist in my neighborhood. And it just so happens I know the right chef and I have some experience in running a restaurant. So here you start putting together the team that can bring this to life. So the need, pain, and opportunity, you identify a need. Pain doesn't really apply as much unless if you're resolving a pain related to service. If you know, God, the restaurants in my neighborhood all take their customers for granted. It's like you go in and you don't feel appreciated as a diner, as a customer. And we all know that food quality and taste is critical, but the overwhelming memory people have of their experience in a restaurant is related to the service. So the pain is that people aren't getting served in a manner that they'd like to. And if you can provide the training, the motivation, the staff that does that, you've now solved the pain that people have more so. So you can have the exact same style restaurant as somebody else. But if you're resolving that issue related to service, that pain, you're going to be a major success. And the opportunity is huh, let's think of something new or different here that doesn't exist at all. But we think people, either the trend is for this, or we think people would like something a bit more unusual in the way we do the service and the aesthetics of the restaurant, which is critical to the success of a lot of restaurants. What do you do that gets people to come back, that make people look around and go, this place is really nice. And before they even sit down, they're thinking, I'm going to enjoy this the lighting, the walls, the furniture. So that's the uncover need, pain, and opportunity, which is the you in the chutzpah model. Next, let's talk about the merits of trailblazing. I think too often we do a poor job as restaurateurs of differentiating ourselves from our competitors. We're very much focused on ourselves, right? But not in relation to the neighboring restaurants or the people that we're competing with on similar cuisines. How do trailblazers do this so effectively? Okay, so this whole concept of trailblazing involves, well, one, the willingness to try with the understanding, you know, you may be wrong, you may have to change things. You're going to make errors. It's inevitable if you have chutzpah and you actually try and build businesses, for example. The trailblazing side would relate here from the standpoint of 
I'm going to do something completely different for this neighborhood or for this community. And we know that you have destination restaurants where diners like myself, I'll drive 15 miles out of the way because I just love the place. And we have the local, the community restaurants. Once you decide, are you one or the other, or is it possible even to be both? So the trailblazing side, it could be a different take on the food that we're serving. Okay. It could be something completely different to the neighborhood as we've spoken about. It also could be, we're going to trailblaze and we're going to hire a staff, not with the recognition or the belief that they're going to turn over quickly, but rather we're going to provide a different level of benefits so that we retain our staff, so that they get to know our customers, our customers get to know them, which makes even a more appealing destination to go to for a meal. So the trailblazing side isn't necessarily related exclusively to the food. It's what are we going to do to make the entire appeal of the restaurant better from a customer's perspective? So that can involve staff, how you train them, how you motivate them, and how committed you are to keeping them. In some restaurants, it makes sense. When you're in the fast food industry, turnover is expected. We know that because for a lot of people, it's a first job or it's a transition job but that's fine. You can still do a better job motivating the people and their interactions with customers. So service, training, staff, and food, all those decisions relate to how you can be a trailblazer in the restaurant industry. Well, and what about messaging? How does messaging play a role in that? How can you trailblaze in an authentic way that resonates? It could be as simple as you send a message when somebody walks into the restroom in your restaurant and there are paper towels on the floor or the sinks are, are wet because they're not getting the attention that they need, or you've gotten rid of the paper towels, which is a message because you want to be more environmentally sensitive, but the electric hand dryer you're using sounds like an airplane that's taking off or landing three feet from you. And that changes the mood right away. I remember a restaurant in Las Vegas, actually, I went to years ago. Went to the restroom, washed my hands afterwards, used the soap. The soap had the most pleasant odor I've ever, I've ever smelled from a soap in my life. And I go back to that restaurant when I'm in Vegas because of that, or one of the reasons. They do a lot of things right. But that was one of those truly trailblazing messages to me. And also, it communicates to me that these guys are different. They're doing things at a higher level. So that's how I think you communicate the message. It's in small ways. Telling people we have great service is a lot less impactful than demonstrating the great service religiously. The whole time you were talking, what I was thinking about was two words, brand promise, because I think it's probably one of the best ways to trailblaze. With my restaurants, we had the same brand promise for all three, which was everybody leaves happy. That was it. That's how we differentiated ourselves from not just every other restaurant, but every other business in the city. Because we made that commitment that no matter what, you were going to walk out happier than when you came in. And we were going to do whatever it took to get there. And we didn't tell people that. But I think that one of the best ways to trailblaze is to have a really specific, really out there brand promise that maybe you don't advertise externally, but definitely creates that impact internally. Another thing you talk about that I thought was super valuable and super poignant to restaurant owners and operators is the value of 
clarity and the power of true clarity through the elimination of ambiguity and decision paralysis, which those are very big words. And it sounds like a very scary thing. Can you unpack that for me in a way that I could implement it in my business today? Sure. It's kind of interesting. We spoke about, for example, uncover need, pain, and opportunity is the first one. The person who says, I think this might be a good idea for a restaurant here. That's followed by the ambiguity elimination. And by that, I mean, there are so many decisions one has to make before opening. So it involves creating a business plan. And the business plan has to address such things as, let me think about this business. What's the location I should be looking at? Because there can be a difference, a significant difference, one block over. There can be a significant difference in choosing a location that's around the corner versus on a main street. And the experienced restaurateur or somebody who's thinking strategically will say, I know the rent's cheaper over here, but I'm going to lose all this visibility. I think I will make the better investment, even if I'm paying a higher rent. So that, the term of the lease, the size of the restaurant, how many people do we think we can reasonably support while making everybody happy, having people leave happy about their experience? And the size of the kitchen that's required to support that. How many people are we going to need in staff to support that? And what are the staffing timeframes? Because restaurants go through peaks and valleys like every business. So the ability to make these decisions for every entrepreneur and in particular for a restaurateur is critical. Because if you don't make the decision, it's going to get made somehow or other, and you may not like the result. Either somebody who doesn't think as clearly as you do, or who's just jumping to a conclusion. Marketing is a great example as well. You have to figure out how much PR do I need before my grand opening? How should I do it? Is it going to be all social media? Should I be working with email lists that I can potentially rent to get the word out? Is it going to be a local newspaper? I'm staying away from the big city newspapers now because they're not really used as much, but local papers still resonate with readers in communities. So those types of decisions, if you leave it to somebody who, you know, I took a marketing course in college. I think I can handle that. Maybe they can, but more likely than not, you want to be involved in that decision. The difficulty is that too often people who have problems making decisions do so because they're worried about the decision being wrong. And I think I mentioned in the book, Jeff Bezos talks about a one-way door and a two-way door model for decision making. The two-way door is, I think I'm going to test this marketing approach. I'm going to implement a text program, and we'll see how successful we are collecting people's phone numbers versus going with email. Well, if the texting isn't working in this two-way program, it's like, okay, we invested a little. We got some numbers. Let's go back. Let's put a little more money and see what we can generate on the email side and see if that gets us a bigger return. That's an easy decision to make. A more difficult decision to make is the location. When you make a decision on a location, that's going to take a lot of thought. That's the one-way door. You can certainly get out of it maybe after 10 years or five years or the length of your lease, but you don't walk back through that door again because it's sealed shut. So you want to be real careful with that one. Too often, people look at the two-way door decisions, the easier ones, as if they're a one-way door decision. Well, in high level. So when I read this section of the book, I immediately thought about myself and my own life experience. And if I could only change one thing, one thing about all of the choices I made when I opened all of these restaurants, it would be that I made one very clear choice and had the clarity 
of focus around two things. Number one, how much money I wanted that restaurant to make net. And number two, how much money I wanted to put in my pocket every month. Because before I even had a location, before I even had a concept, because had I chosen those two things first, it would have informed the tier of dining, the location I would have chosen, how much I was willing to pay in rent, how many seats the restaurant needed to have, how big the staff needed to be. It would have literally informed every decision I made. But that was always kind of left up to chance that I would find a location that I liked and there was a cuisine that I was passionate about and there was a community that I wanted to positively impact and influence by bringing my values and the values that I was brought up with to this community. And I didn't think about those things until the day I opened. And then I was like, well, what about me? What about the amount of money I need to make? What about the money that the restaurant needs to make? All of these things were after the fact. So when we talk about clarity, I feel like if we start by answering those big questions that directly impact us, that is the lens through which we're able to look at all of these other things that you talk about with the right intention in mind. And that's a great point. As business people, we know that what's the bottom line going to be? Is this going to be a worthwhile investment in time? Am I going to get the return that I need? But too often, people make an emotional decision. It's like, oh, this is so exciting. That space opened up. I've been thinking about opening up a restaurant or a business. I'm going to rush in there. So it works backwards. As you say, moving forward, you're going to start with what is it that I need to make to make this venture even worthwhile for me? I have so many options. If I'm going to go here and go with this cuisine, what's the return that I need? How am I going to pay back investors? How am I going to ensure that my community, my associates are all well served and I can bring something special to my customers? I want them to leave happy. So it's because of the experience you have. You're able to do this and see this. And that's an insight that's actually great for people starting out. And when they make that decision to move, hopefully they have thought about it, even if it wasn't in the top three things they thought about. They thought, oh, I want to be in the restaurant business because I was an assistant chef at this location. They should be thinking about, okay, who's going to be managing the business side of it? Because being an exceptional chef and running, operating a restaurant are very, very different things. And if you don't have both skill sets in there, you're going to suffer. So what you're saying in terms of looking back now, historically, I would have looked at, is this going to bring the return that makes it worthwhile for me? I think that's a great place to start. Absolutely. Another quality that you focus on is humility. We look at these star ratings on review sites, and we see that as our reputation within our community. But it goes much deeper than that. Talk to me about what humility looks like in action, in good times and bad. In good times and bad, humility is respect for the people you're working with, an openness to discussing things, and even encouraging. I talk in the book about creating a culture of chutzpah among your organization. So you want, for example, a staff of people that says, you know, I know that this is our policy in regard to splitting checks. But so many people are coming in and asking to do something different, and I keep telling them we can't do it. And I know they leave unhappy. And there you violated the key message, mission statement that you have. Now, some people might say, well, I don't really care. This is how we do it. Operationally, this works the best for me. Somebody with humility will say, you know, if I'm going to be consistent with my values, 
we really should change this policy. We have to find a way to make sure that the customer in every area from seating, comfort, food, price, how do they handle a meal that comes out incorrectly? Is there something that can be done to say, we apologize, and on top of it, I'd like to offer you a complimentary dessert? I don't know. That changes. That differs from owner to owner, restaurant to restaurant. But the idea that treat people with respect, you live up to those ideals. Now, in bad times, that's the interesting piece. You have restaurateurs that struggled. They went through the various stages that we discussed. They went through uncovering need, pain, and opportunity, creating that business plan. They made all those decisions. They handled the objections from family members and even from sources of capital, from friends who said, why are you doing this? You have a good job. Do you know how difficult the restaurant industry is? They went through that piece. They couldn't get the banker, so they had to zigzag. They had to find alternate sources of capital to be able to provide what they wanted without sacrificing on the decor, on the menu, on the food quality, which is one area where when times are tough, we both know some restaurateurs change the level of quality that they offer without changing the price because they feel that, oh, this is short term. I'll get through this and I desperately need it. We spoke about the trailblazing. Well, unfortunately, and I speak about purpose in the book, sometimes bad luck intervenes. The pandemic devastated people's lives. Millions of people worldwide died. And I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of businesses closed across the world because of the pandemic. The restaurant industry was one of those industries that was severely disrupted. And it even varied, like in Florida, they closed restaurants, but they still allowed open seating. California, I remember a period where you could not even have outdoor seating because I was out in California and we couldn't go anywhere. So that pandemic was bad luck. So how did people respond to that bad luck? What did they do to pivot, to stay open, to try and keep their staff, if they could, employed? or key employees? Do they help them if they had to let them go with unemployment? Of course, now we're also seeing the repercussions of people who left and ended up making more on unemployment than they were while they were working for some period of time. But the bad times, how you or other owners treat colleagues, staff members, and customers, what you do to try and continue a level of service, maintain your contribution to the community, and doing what you can to get the support back, that again gets to humility. If I was the person that said, look, I know that there's unemployment out there, but I need to work. Working is good for my soul. I need to interact with people. I don't want to be stuck at home. And I know there's a risk coming into work and being a server or or moving from restaurant service into the delivery side which was one way people pivoted. Another way might have been to prepare more meals that could be picked up and reheated. The successful restaurateurs, those that had some good fortune, but also a willingness to take some more risks, were able to pivot. And they did that by treating, again, their employees and their colleagues with a level of respect that some others didn't. You list a ton of folks in the book that possess chutzpah to varying degrees. And with thousands of restaurant owners and operators listening, who do you think they could look to as their chutzpah mentor? God, I've spoken to so many restaurateurs over the year, and I've heard stories. One has always stood out for me, and I believe it's a true story. But Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, the people say, oh, it's Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. No, it's the Chris is the style of preparing the steaks. 
is my understanding. But Ruth, who was a real person, as I understand it, during the terrible hurricanes that devastated New Orleans, or I'm not sure if it was that or another serious outage, but in essence, restaurants lost power. Their refrigerators lost the power. It was pretty evident that all of the food that they had for the day or a couple of days out was going to spoil because power was not going to be returned. And if there were no backup generators, the food was going to spoil. And the story I heard was that here you had Ruth instructing her staff, take the steaks, take the chicken, take the fish, grill it, and let's give it away to people because it's going to be written off anyway. At least let's provide some benefit to the community we serve so they can walk away with a hot meal because they could still use barbecue grills outdoors. They'll have something. And hopefully people will think of us next time. So that's an example of this, but that's a great question. I'd never gotten that one before. And I'm glad I have at least a reasonable answer on it. No, I, I think that's a great example. You know, who I think of is I think of, and this is crazy, is the Nordstrom department store. I thought of them as I read throughout your whole book. And I think it totally speaks to hospitality. There's this old wives tale. I can't tell you whether it's true or not. Um, but Nordstrom has always had a policy as a department store of accepting returns still to this day. If you bought it there, you can return it there. And there's this story of an elderly man rolling a worn tire in there. And he said, this tire is defective. There's a huge hole in it. I want to get my money back. And he rolled it into Nordstrom that doesn't sell tires. And he said, there was a tire store here at one point. And so do you know how I can get in touch with these people? Because I want to return the tire. And the person on the floor didn't know what to do, so they kicked it up the ladder. The store manager comes out and turns to the gentleman and says, I'm so sorry you've had to deal with this, sir. I'm sure it's a total pain in the neck. How much did you pay for the tire? And the guy said, I paid X amount of dollars for the tire. And the gentleman or woman said, we are happy to give you store credit for what you spent on this tire. We apologize for the inconvenience. You know, it's interesting. I had heard that story. We believe certain things, and I believe it's certainly within the realm of possibility because Me too. of everything I know about Nordstrom. I can give you a Nordstrom story. I live in the Washington, D.C. area. I used to shop at the Nordstrom's in Montgomery Mall in Maryland, in the Bethesda area. And the person who I bought my suits from ended up moving to Virginia. Not as easy a trip. And I ended up writing Nordstrom's customer service and I said, look, I want you to know that this person, and I mentioned it, has been great. I've been working with him for years. Moving him to Virginia really is not advantageous to me. <laughs> I don't want to sound selfish or anything, but I'll let it go now. However, if you move him to Seattle, I'm going to be real pissed when I fly out to Seattle to continue using him. I heard back from Nordstrom. I think it was John Nordstrom himself actually called me. He laughed at the email. He said, I'm reading this going, uh-oh, another complaint. Let me see. What can I do to get it resolved? And he said, wow, this is probably the nicest letter I've seen from a customer saying, your service is worth everything that I pay. And it's worth the inconvenience of going out of the way, which is also a lesson for restaurateurs. We'll all go out of our way for a restaurant that really impresses us. We'll bypass eight similar restaurants or that are in the same category 
to get to the one that we want. But yeah, Nordstrom's is an exceptional example. I thought we were even looking at a person because there's so many people we discuss in the book. This is an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I'd like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Do you have any advice or words of encouragement you'd like to offer? Well, first on the encouragement side, you made the decision to own a restaurant or multiple restaurants. You already have chutzpah. So now, hopefully, my book is able to help you by identifying eight key behaviors and characteristics. And you don't have to be strong in all of them, but they can work together. And maybe you have somebody on your team that's stronger in one area versus another. If you have trouble making decisions or tough ones, find somebody whose judgment you value, you can trust. That'll help you make those decisions more quickly. You're also in an industry that sadly gets a lot of criticism unfairly. And one or two bad reviews can ruin your day. Don't let it ruin your day. There are people out there that complain because it's their nature to complain. The customers that keep coming back, that tell you another great job tonight, I love the meal tonight, assuming you're even walking around and meeting customers there, they'll share with you the things that are good or bad. That's why I imagine you do it. That and also the return on investments. However, let's put that aside. The piece that you're hearing from people that you're positively impacting their day, their meals, their family, their choices. They come to your restaurant to celebrate important occasions, birthdays, anniversaries, engagements. That's great. You have an impact on people's lives. So that's the appreciation I have for this industry. That's Mason Harris. You can pick up his book, The Chutzpah Advantage, wherever books are sold. If you want to tell us your story or refer someone to be a guest on the show, email us at booking at fullcomp.media. To hear previous episodes or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel, and you've been listening to Full Comp.